to fully grasp what's going on in our story this week, we have to backtrack a little bit to the end of our story from last week. So last week we ended with a question. And it's going to set up everything that happens in these verses that we're studying in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. So quite a few of the Israelites had handled the Ark of the Covenant. This sacred object that God chose to represent His own presence among them. They handled it in a pretty casual way. And they've died because of it. And those left ask this question in response. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? I try to picture them as they ask this question. What's their posture? What's their tone of voice? I wonder if in a way they're throwing up their hands in grief at the same time, saying, who can stand before this God? In a way, exasperated and wondering, really? Who can do this? How do we stand before this God? This is how it can feel with God if we're honest. Some of us can feel beat down because we know too well we'll never be good enough for this holy God. Others of us feel discouraged because we try to do good and it feels like things sometimes get worse rather than better trying to follow this holy God. We wonder if life is harder sometimes with God or without Him. And this is why I wonder if they threw up their hands because they really want to know. In fact, these people will send away the ark of God for a temporary respite. The question they ask, it hits at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Christians in past centuries have even coined a Latin phrase for this, coram Deo, before the face of God. And what's meant by this is that to be a Christian means we live in the face of this holy God. Before His captivating gaze. We live under the authority, the power, and sometimes the judgment of this holy God. And at some moments, it's comforting to know that we live within the gaze of this God. He is sovereign. He's powerful. But at other moments, like we saw in the story last week, it's absolutely terrifying to think that you live within the gaze of this holy God. This week, what we're learning is how a person can do this. How people can live before the face of God. We don't soften His image to be able to live in front of Him. Instead, we believe that He really is this holy, and yet we really can live before His face. At the heart of this week's story is one action, one attitude, one posture, if you will, and that is repentance. What this story is telling us is that the way you live before the face of this holy God is repentance. Now, Repentance, I know for me, I often think of it as something like an on-ramp to being a Christian. You take the on-ramp, and then you get onto the interstate, and you can always look back and you know you repented, but now you're on the interstate. And it's the Christian life and it's something different. But the way that the Bible describes repentance is, repentance is more like the road itself of the Christian life. And if at any point in the Christian life you veer off of this 
posture, this way of being. It's like going off into a swamp. You're going to get stuck and you're not going to be able to go any further. Because being a Christian is fundamentally about us having this need that only God can satisfy. And the need is mercy. Repentance is about returning to God over and over and over again. And in the story Leonard read to us, what we're seeing is a process for repentance. A process that we embody all the time. So the first step is a little surprising. The first step in the process of repentance is we have to move past sadness. We have to move past sadness. Let me try to show you what I'm talking about. Did you notice in the opening of the story today that some 20 years passed and everyone, it says, was lamenting after the Lord? It's pretty vague. Even the emotion is vague. They were lamenting. And when we read the Bible, when there's psalms of lament, this can be this kind of uh, uh, anger sometimes. It can be this uh, uh, frenzied attitude. It, It can sometimes just be sadness. But the point is, it's a little bit vague, the emotion that they're experiencing as they're lamenting after God. We don't know what happened over all these 20 years. But here's what we know is that as the 20 years were wrapping up, Samuel steps in and he basically says, if this sadness is about you returning to the Lord, to God, then do that. But you've got more work to do. You need to put away your other gods and you need to give this God your full attention. We see in other places of Scripture, like the passage that Tracy just read to us, that grief, this vague sadness about things in life, is a very early step in the process of repentance. But also, such as in the passage in 2 Corinthians, there's a warning associated with grief. That only a particular kind of grief, godly grief, actually leads to repentance. In other words, there is a kind of grief and regret that doesn't actually give way to repentance. In fact, in the passage that Tracy read, there's a worldly type of grief that doesn't lead to repentance, but it leads to a kind of death, a kind of despair. Some of us will wallow in grief for a little while, or we may try to move quickly from it, and we miss or short-circuit what God might have done in us through the grief. Now, one thing we can draw from Samuel, from this story, is that there can be long seasons of our lives where we're not really satisfied with the way things are going. Maybe we're down about life, we've got regret about some things we did in the past, but what this passage is nailing down for us is that that grief, that sadness, is not the same thing as repentance. It's not the same thing. And if these folks went 20 years in this state, we can, we can do that same thing. You know, it's actually pretty impressive the capacity a lot of us have to go for long seasons of life just being miserable. I mean, seriously, we have this amazing level of tolerance for being unhappy for a long time. A lot of us can do this. In our marriages, in our jobs, in friendships, We can just go on with this general passivity of being unhappy. 
But I, and I think the reason we can sustain those periods for so long is because facing our sadness and all that it means can be so hard. But the sadness itself is part of God's wisdom that's meant to prompt us into real repentance. So this is what the early church father Augustine was getting at when he said this, God has made us for Himself and we are restless until we find ourselves in Him. God has made us for Himself and we are restless until we find ourselves in Him. The restlessness in us, the vague sadness is meant to draw us, prompt us toward repentance. And when you look around our world, this is exactly what you find in many people, isn't it? A restlessness about life? A a low-grade depression? People who are unhappy in their marriages, unhappy in their jobs, a little bit ticked off at the world? A perpetual displeasure. And I think our world has gotten good at dealing with symptoms of sadness and anxiety, haven't we? I, I don't mean to discount the advantages of the mental health profession. These are wonderful advancements in our world. But we've got very good at taking care of the symptoms. We can change relationships. We can change jobs, whatever. We can medicate it. But we haven't gotten better at dealing with the roots of our sadness and our discontentment. And the reason is because to deal with those things, you have to deal with God. So, are you sad or are you anxious about anything? Are you angry? Could it be that any of these emotions could be a prompt from God to lead you into some kind of process of repentance? Of listening to God and drawing more close to Him? The first step in the process of repentance is for us to move past our sadness. But the natural tendency when we're discontent is for us to pile up other gods trying to find a quicker and less painful solution. And this is why the next step in the process of repentance is we must take courageous action. So first we have to move past our sadness and then secondly we have to take courageous action. So Samuel tells Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. So these are the gods Israel has accumulated over the years as they've tried to keep their sadness at bay. It's pretty fascinating actually to look into these gods and to think about how little we've changed over the centuries. So Ashtaroth was this goddess associated with fertility, sex, and war. So she gave you a sense of assurance in the areas that were most important to life. Think of how necessary it would have felt in that world. Without fertility, your family and your people die out. And it's the same with war. You're going to take all the help you can get. Now, the gods mentioned later, the Baals, were thought to control the weather, and they also assisted in war. Now, if you don't have rain during a crop season, there's an entire society and economy that is gutted, crushed in one season. If Ashtaroth didn't come through in a war, maybe Baal would. You see what's happening here? Israel's covering their bases. They're making sure they have extra help. Now... False gods like these 
are always developed around good things. Notice this. Things like family, sex, work, and money. These are the sorts of things that enhance life, aren't they? A lot of us love our work. We love our family. We want money not just to make it a God, but we want it to be able to provide for our family. We mean well in this. No one is going to make a God for something that no one cares about. That's not very important. Think about it. We're going to have bagels after our service today. And bagels are okay, but none of us are going to make a bagel God, right? Like it's, it's, We just don't care about bagels that much. But things that are good, that can make life beautiful, are families. Money, the things that we can get with money, the security we can attain, safety, even politics, which believe it or not, politics can be a good thing. These good and important things, these are the things that we make gods out of. But when they become gods, when they become ultimate things, they distort us. So family, as wonderful as it is, when you make it your God and you allow it to control you, then you try to control it. And then you can become a terrible parent. And then when family is taken away from you in some way, whatever that may be, it entirely ruins you. It's the same with money. It's the same with safety, politics, whatever they are. They can be wonderful gifts, but they're terrible gods. They ruin us. Uh, Tim Keller, he's a former pastor in New York, and he tells the story of a man who was converted to Christianity just three years before the financial crisis of 2008 to 2009. So you might remember, there were a lot of people who were working in the financial sector during this time who, when the crisis hit, they lost millions of dollars, their own money and others, and there were people committing suicide because of it. So this particular man worked in the financial markets, and he said that before his conversion, his ultimate security had been in money. He says if the crisis had happened prior to his conversion, he not, he's not sure how he would have kept going. He probably would have committed suicide, much like many did. But after his conversion, he said that even in the midst of the crisis, he could honestly say he was the happiest he had ever been. He turned from a false God to a true God, a God that could be taken away from him to a God that couldn't be taken away from him. False gods are those things in our lives that without which we're not sure how we would survive. They give us this sense of being in control and we fear that without them, life would not be worth living. And this is why repentance calls us to take courageous action. We have to give up our idols, these things that we've used to give us meaning, and we have to turn to the true God, the God that can't be taken away from us. Now look, all of us have idols. Idolatry is the root cause of all sin. All sin. Worshiping something other than God. This is the story of Scripture. This is how sin enters into creation and this is how it continues. All of us have idols. Things that we're prone to prop up in the place of God Himself. So what are the idols in your life? 
Are you continually repenting of these idols? Even if it's not something that you're fighting with a lot right now, if you feel like you're in a good place with God, we still have to be careful, alert, to where these things can sneak in. One of the devotionals I use regularly, it leads me to pray this prayer. Lord, grant me the grace to be free from the excesses of this life. Let me not get caught up with the desire for wealth. Keep my heart and mind free to love and serve You. So it's, it's so simple. But I find that every time I pray that prayer, no matter how frequent it is, even if I'm doing it every morning, there are material things as I'm praying that prayer that I'm realizing that I want and that are taking up a space in my heart that really only belongs to God. This is the way that idols have to be fought on a, on a daily basis in prayer like this. And repentance at this step is a call to be decisive. To choose not to follow an idol, but to follow God. So how are you dealing with your idols? Are you taking courageous action against your idols and just choosing, I'm not going to follow this. I'm going to trust in God. So the first step in repentance is to move past sadness. The second is to take a courageous action. And the third step is we have to have a mediator. We have to have a mediator in this process. Samuel, the man of God, he says to all of Israel, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So Israel gathers. They pour out water as a symbol of pouring out their hearts to God. They fast and then they announce publicly, we have sinned against the Lord. One thing we should notice as we listen to this is that repentance is no informal private act that I do on my own. It has nothing to do with other people. It's not that. There are moments in our lives where repentance has to be marked out publicly like this, where we need this powerful ritual to mark it down that we're changing. We're changing. We're turning from an idol to the true God. We need this because if we don't mark it down, it won't be real repentance. So think about how many of us have made these half-cocked commitments never to do something again and found ourselves a week later doing the same thing over again. We need confession. We need powerful rituals to nail down our repentance. And anything less than this, than this public repentance, allows us to hold on to our pride And then we'll fall back into the same sin soon after. Now, while all of this is happening, while Israel is repenting, the Philistines get word that Israel's gathered together. Now, if you're in a a nation in the ancient world, you hear your neighboring nation has gathered together. What do you think they're doing? Getting ready, ready for a battle. Not worshiping and turning to God. But fighting is so far from Israel's mind. Remember, they're 0 for 2 against the Philistines. And even though it's been 20 years, those kind of memories don't die easily. Israel's terrified and they say to Samuel, don't cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel takes a lamb, he offers it to God, and he cries out to God on behalf of Israel. And while he does, the Philistines come in for the fight 
And the Philistines are shocked this time to find that God is fighting for Israel. Samuel in this story is functioning as Israel's mediator to God. He goes to God on Israel's behalf and God forgives Israel for their idolatry and he fights for them. Samuel was to Israel what Jesus has become for us. We confess to Jesus that we've sinned. We have worshipped other gods. Jesus intercedes for us to the Father and He offers Himself as the sacrificial lamb. And God, in response, turns His face toward us in love. And He fights for us. We can't lose. You know, there's no other faith in the world that's built on repentance in this way. And the reason is that no other faith in the world has the capacity for forgiveness and mercy in this way. This is the heart of Christianity. We are in need of mercy and only God can give it. And this is the gospel, the good news. God is willing to give it. He's become our mediator. We can confess and expect to receive mercy. And this is why we start our service each week by confessing our sins together. Because we're pounding in the nail over and over and we're saying to ourselves, each other and God, that repentance is the road. This is the way. And this is a God who's willing to forgive. So are, are you confessing your sin in faith that God is forgiving you? And that He loves you. Are you going to Jesus and admitting your sin? So in repentance, we have to move past our sadness. We have to take courageous action. We have to confess to our mediator, Christ, and receive His mercy. But then, very soon after, even while this is happening, there comes this test. This is part of the process of repentance. Our repentance has to be tested. So Israel's in the midst of repentance, right? They're throwing off their gods that they've trusted for war, the Ashtaroth and the Baals. And while they're still repenting, the Philistines approach ready to do battle. Israel isn't prepared. They're terrified. Their lives are on the line. And while it's happening, they can still smell the smoke of the fire that's burning their gods of war. And here's the question Israel has to ask themselves. What God are we going to turn to now? It's the test of repentance. This is where the rubber meets the road when it comes to whether we follow God or not. Whether we believe in Him to care for us and to give us ultimate meaning. Where do we go under pressure? Who do you trust when everything's on the line? Think about it. If you want to know who your God is, think about the decisions you've made when it felt like life was pressing in on you. Where do you go? Who do you turn to? Who do you trust? Do you still turn fully toward God and toward His people in these moments? Or do you turn to other places? Those other places you turn... Those are your gods. Be honest about this. Those are your gods. 
And if it's anything other than Yahweh, the true God, then He is calling you to repentance. To turn from idols and to serve Him. And to trust Him. You see, because of this surprise test during the middle of their repentance, Israel's going to learn that if they'll just worship rightly, God's going to take care of everything else. They're not prepared for battle, but God's going to win the battle for them. They're still going to have to fight, but God's going to do the heavy lifting. You trust that God will do this for you, that He'll take care of you. So this is part of the process of repentance. We must be tested. And here is the last part, and we'll wrap up with this one. We have to have a memorial, a place to go to remember that God has saved us. So after the battle, Samuel sets up a stone. He calls it Ebenezer, which means stone of help. Samuel says, up to now, God has helped us. And what this means is we can continue to trust Him because He will continue to help us. Your own memorial, Christian, is your baptism. In your baptism, God committed to you that He will give you new life, that He will care for you and He will be your God and you won't need another one. But in your baptism, you also committed to Him that you'll walk in that new life. Remember your baptism. Be faithful to your baptism. And the second memorial we have is this table. This table is the victory feast where we receive the spoils of war. Jesus died. He gave His life for you so that He could be your true God and so that you can receive true life. It's the memorial. God has saved you. If you're not a Christian, God is willing to save you. Turn from your false gods and trust the true God. He will save you. So back to the beginning. Who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who can? Who can live quorum Deo before the penetrating gaze of this God? Anyone can. That's the answer. Anyone can. Anyone who's willing to live a life of repentance, willing to turn from their idols and trust the living God. So let me ask you again. Will you move on from your sadness, your discontentment, and toward courageous action. Will you turn from your idols these things that you've held on to and you've counted on them to give you life, but they haven't? Will you turn to the God who's willing to turn His face toward you in love and to care for you and to be your God? This is how we live before the face of God. Through His loving mercy. Because there's one thing we need. It's His kindness. It's His forgiveness. And He's willing to give it. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.